0: Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gauthier.
1: Welcome back to another episode of The Flowline, Line. Matt, here we are again today. We did a last minute rendezvous and we came up with what I believe is a good podcast episode for the flow line. But first and foremost, the weekend, we got through that. Yeah. You're the baseball guy. So I'm, I'm curious. I mean, we're September, one month away from, you know, the almighty
0: uh, October playoff run here. So how are we looking? I mean, we're looking, I mean, the Estros have looked a little flat. And then yesterday they fell down, you know, behind like three to nothing. And you're just like, oh my gosh. Uh. And then you know some home runs happened. Dubon hit a homer, kind of got it started, and they ended up winning twelve to four. Bregman hit a grand slam. Oh, what! All was well. That's sweet. But whenever they score more than ten runs, they tend to get shut out the next day. So oh, really? We'll we'll see how they do in, in Detroit. But uh, I went from being very angry about the game to to being really excited, and I was I was mostly listening to it. Just uh, for the record, if there's someone you do not like and they have small children, buy them a kid craft play set, um, okay. which requires, it says 10 to 12 hours to assemble with two people. What? I'm on like hour five, but I was out in the yard. And between that and the Astros game and my son helping, mm, yeah. he said he would help by playing in the sandbox. But Fair enough.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know uh, how that goes.
0: I was able to avoid using words that I hope he does not ever repeat, but temptation was there. <laughs> so so what is this that you're putting together? Like, it's if, like a playset. It's got a slide on it, like, oh, like a, the four four thing, uh, and yes, it was one of those. Was like it was on sale. For a reason, I'm sure. I, th- I think it's because, like, all the bad reviews are from people who are like, I've been at this for 16 hours <laughs> and half of it's broken. Oh, no. Um, and I'm like, I've been doing this by myself and I have, like, extra tools. I kind of know what I'm, like, I'm fairly handy, I, I, would, I would think. Yeah. And so I'm just like, oh, man, I can just imagine. But, of course, it's half built and my son is demanding to play on oh, it. Oh, he do all wants it done now. Yeah. So. that's
1: I commend yeah. you for taking that on by yourself. It's I pretty mean, intense.
0: I probably, like, there's a better way to do this, which probably involves getting, like, a case of beer and finding somebody <laughs> who just come over for a little bit. Yeah. But I really wanted to, like, get started and get an idea of what it was like. And then yeah. w- once you've started, you're like, all right, we're on step 15 to 70. Let's just keep let's So is it like a going. big booklet
1: that you just kind of, like, it's like an assembly, step-by-step, yeah. you know, step, take these pieces? of So we, we have one that we got from, I think it's Tree Frog or Tree House. Tree Frog. And... Again, I you know, I'm I'm not nearly as ambitious as yourself for when we first got it, actually it was a Christmas present and so Santa, quote unquote, put it together that night which we didn't we just managed to keep our kids from looking outside for I think like 2 days before Christmas is like forever ago. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, when they woke up, oh, Santa brought a playhouse and put it together with the elves and this and that and then but then when we moved to the house we're in now, which was like 4 years ago. Yeah, I I was like, well, we're already paying a ton of money for people to move us. I'll just do this myself. And actually it wasn't nearly as bad. Cause when I disassembled it, I kept as many pieces together as possible. So it was not like every single piece was taken apart. And yeah, yeah me and another fellow that uh, lived close by, he came over and we knocked it out and like, you know, a couple hours, but to do it from scratch, like all the pieces, yeah, that would be hellacious. I don't think I would do that. So, uh, you know, I applaud you. That's pretty. It, if I could awesome. find a
0: way to pay somebody <laughs> in a reasonable amount of time, then <laughs> yeah. the problem is he saw the box and right. I feel like it's a dad rite of passage. Anyways, I sort I, of brought it on myself. Hey, but, look,
1: I get it. That's awesome. Um,
0: and and there was, uh, I will qualify. It was generously given to us because my father in law was actually at Costco and we didn't know anything about it. But he was like, "Hey, there's a good deal." Like. Whatever. Mm. And so anyways, like the kids are going to love it and it'll all turn out well. However, I understand the very negative reviews (laughs) all involved assembly once assembled. I imagine it will be glorious. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, on the topic of frustrations for any of the old Texans fans out there, I'm sure you're quite frustrated about the the tie that we had with the Colts yesterday. We came out guns a blazing and I went up 20 to six. Which then led to twenty to twenty. Yeah. I think <laughs> most
0: Texans fans are like emotionally conditioned for this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one, it was like you sort of expected them to lose. It was like the University of Texas and Alabama. Like I expected them to get blown out. Yeah. And I mean, shoot, what could have been with the refs and all that other stuff? I mean, like, there's a there's an argument to be like U T played a heck of a game mm-hmm. and there's nothing to be ashamed of with with the way that, you know, went down. You just wonder If only. Yeah. But, like, that was like, well, I wish we could have won because we were so close, but I'm not disappointed compared to the alternative. Yeah. And the Texans, it was the same thing, but it was like, you clearly had this wrapped up. Yeah. Yeah, The energy they had
1: at the time they were playing... if I was a betting man, I would have certainly bet quite a bit that the Texans would have won and just held on to the lead, maybe given up a touchdown, but to come out like that. But no, to your point, I heard a lot of people this morning talking, but there's some folks over at where I was this morning that are UT fans, and they were blown away with the performance, and although it was a loss, but you know, again, overall great game. And so for the listeners out there, clearly, you know, Matt and I are bantering about six minutes into this and we haven't talked about mud yet. But now that we're in football season and baseball playoffs, there's still lots to talk about that doesn't involve mud. (laughs) Exactly. But nonetheless, Matt, let's move on. I'm sure the listeners are eager to hear about what we're talking about today. And the topic that we came up with is really what to consider around taking flow while using while drilling with oil-based mud. And for those out there who, you know, I'm sure a lot of the mud engineers out there that have drilled with oil-based mud. If you start taking water flow from, you know, whether it's just formation water or you're taking an injection or you're getting fracked into, you know, your world can unravel pretty quickly. And so I just thought uh, would it would be a good topic to talk about, you know, with, with planning and the different products and just things that options per se when these things either are happening or will happen. And so, Matt, what do you think? Is that something that's pretty relevant uh, in your world?
0: I mean, we get questions all the time, right? And it's, it's one of those, like, all things can mud fix the fact that I'm taking a water flow along with fixing directional and eliminating casing strings and mm. you know it's one of those we're no miracle workers but uh, we're asked to perform many yeah so I, I think it's worth discussing because I, I think a lot of it is making good decisions when it's happening as far as what to do next, minimize right. the impact, you know
1: yeah no, that's exactly right and just like everything we do, I think one of the first and foremost topics that that are worth mentioning is the planning side of it before you even, get on location when when you're right in the mud program and uh, you know the operator and the the mud company are, are talking about different things Matt planning is, is of the utmost important and uh, you know what's that old saying if you if you fail to plan you plan to fail right
0: yes <laughs> so
1: Matt when in the planning stages what are things that we need to be talking about before we even get out on location
0: I mean I think the first part is it's going to sound really dumb but Can you turn off? Let's say it's an injector. Well, can you turn off the injector? Well, or can you manage, you know, a frack schedule so that maybe they're not fracking or near you at the time that all this is going on? Right. Both of them, when you ask the question to the operator, normally they laugh at you. But, you know, part of this, the injector well, it could be an injector well that they have control over. Right. But they've got its production department you've got to talk to or. It's, it's some other group, and if it's a bigger company, there, there may be less communication. Depending, almost every state, you can look up where they are, and you might have some idea of if something's nearby, but you can't. It might not be active. It might be more than active. Some of that stuff is a little bit tricky as far as how that data is available, but it's, it's worth keeping in mind. Do your due diligence. Okay. Have a look. Ask about the FRAC schedule. At least ask. I know (laughs) that, you know, for a while there, there were a few operators that said, yeah, we work with our neighbors and try not to be fracking while somebody else is drilling in a nearby area and all that. And I don't know if that all went to the wayside again, because you just it was probably easier when you had a choice of when you could fracture. And now that every crew is tied up for the next year, Mm -hmm. it's probably like, we'll take them when we can get them. Sorry. Right. However ask those questions. I think that's like kind of a good starting point Yeah. if know, we think anything could happen.
1: Right. Yeah. And and so once, you know, you have those discussions and whether or not they can or can't, I think it's important to know, okay, well, if we, you know, so, hey, you know, we're going to be taking flow on this well, well, where, you know, let, let's consider the well design. Is it going to be, are these SWDs, you know, 4,000 feet into the intermediate or where are we going to possibly see this flow? Because then you can kind of plan around it, depending on you know your typical MUD program that you're used to deploying. And so I think again, just understanding the well profile is important. And then where are you taking the flow? That's obviously something that, I mean, for us is is important to know.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you can anticipate, okay, it's probably at this depth and you drill through it, guess what, you, you can probably figure out, okay, this is how much pressure it'll take to kill it. You yeah. can anticipate some of the, how can I, will I be able to case it off? Those kinds of things. You know, and, and even on the the fracking side, should I think about this as a risk? Does anybody know? Right. And then the other, you know, we've run into some interesting ones where we even picked up like some wax and some other stuff from nearby wells where it, you know, of course it was a product issue. And then we looked into it and it was like, oh, I, you know, we got a sample, samples are never happened, people. We got samples, analyzed it, and turned out it was coming from a well. And then we were able to realize, okay, well, it created drilling fluid issues, right? But it was from well interaction. So kind of, kind of knowing where where that sits. I mean, I guess from a, you know, so you have like your portfolio of products too, right? Like, what am I? Look, we get flows here all the time. There are a couple of barrels an hour. I deal with it, right? Yeah, that's a different conversation than I take hundred barrels an hour and. I end up with more produced water than I do mud, uh, right? Like, yeah. and, and both happen. Yeah. So that can affect whether you choose to use water-based mud or oil-based mud. You know, we're talking about oil-based mud here. So I guess we assume we're fairly comfortable with the idea that oil-based mud has enough benefits. Right. But, you know, if you know, or you know the likelihood or the potential intensity of a flow, where are you going to go from there? hmm And even, you know, what do I need to do to treat it? And when do I treat it? Right.
1: Yeah. No. And so, to kind of on the planning stage, obviously, when the mud engineer makes a spud order, are are there any specific products? Like, let, let's assume again, because we're discussing oil based mud. Let's say that between the operator and the mud company is, like, hey, you know, we're we're committed to going with you know oil based mud. What are some things if we take on floor? Are there any special products that can help you know maintain the properties or help combat some of the the effects of the water? I mean, does anything come to mind that we have on the shelf that we can offer you know operators?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably our the product we typically go to was designed for this. It's, it's a product called Flowmol, hence the clever name. <laughs> but, you know, the idea is to be able to bring the mud back into shape as quickly as possible when you, it starts to take water so that you can keep it from flipping and, and get back to, you know, tightening up fluid loss and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we basically did is, yes, you could use conventional emulsifier and that sort of thing, and it, you can do it. It'll take more. But the other thing we sort of optimized for was we actually tested it against water flows we picked up mm. because we found that variation in salinity affected emulsifier performance too. Uh. And so this was designed to tolerate the swing a little bit more and get your mud properties back. So Flow Mole, I mean it really was customers saying, Well, what are you gonna do about it? And, and, and in a way, you sort of laugh and say, Well, I can't control where your SWDs come in. And right. but it was well, we can help remediate the problem. To some degree so we, we spent a little bit of time trying to come up with sort of a nuanced product for that application and and it's worked really well for us cool so, so that's that's like the immediate one that comes to mind rightfully so
1: when, when dealing with a waterfall when using oil based mud your your biggest concern is the emulsion wanting to separate right so if you can help you know control that or at least limit the effects of that or perhaps you know prolong the effects because ultimately if you keep getting flow and you just can't keep up well then this you know, mathematically, you can't, you're, you, unless you're able to dilate. I mean, it can just get out of hand. But if you're starting to see it, there are products out there like that and perhaps other ones out there on the market that can help control the emulsion.
0: Yeah, and, and so, for example, we talk about, everybody knows how much I love low clay, <laughs> you know, low ECD muds for, for unconventionals. But, you know, our system, it's primarily used because without as much organoclay, it tends to tolerate flows a little better. Mm, um, and you could use that in combination with mole, you know, if, if you did have have some challenges. a lot of times where our risks are not low, but maybe it's not necessarily the intensity, but it's the frequency. And so we say, look, let's just run our conventional system. It's a little cheaper. And then if we get one, we can bring it back quickly. And, and that's a lot of the use cases for mole. But we do intentionally use Enter reach sometimes just to keep the clay levels extra low knowing we might take a flow and and it'll keep everything together pretty well.
1: Yep. No, that's exactly right. And so, you know, ass- assuming we you know, we plan for it, we've got a couple options in place to to help mitigate the uh, contamination effects of taking a flow. Let's assume we're we're drilling along, everything's good. What would be one of the things when you start taking flow man, this is, you know, well control 101, but what what's the most, you know, immediate I guess course of action if you will? Can you wait up? <laughs> right. can, we, can we stop the influx from influxing? <laughs> right. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, and with that, there that comes risk, right? And so if you're, you know, again, in a scenario, like I was talking with one of the, our customers this morning, this was a conversation, you know, real life conversation we were having. And it was like, you know, yes, we could wait up, comma. However, we have some up instability that is susceptible to taking losses. So when you have these tight windows, these are the things you have to consider. And it's like, okay, well if we're you know, if we're drilling along with a just hypothetically speaking, a ten pound mud, well, at what point is that gonna break down? Like what what's our gradient there? And so if you're dealing with a tiny gradient, you get some flow, well then okay, you can only wait up to a 10 ten two after that you're going to start losing returns okay well you know then what and so without getting into that scenario specifically the obvious question to the operator or, or you know when you're having discussions with as a group is like okay is the option of waiting up an option if it's not okay then what so some right. very important
0: and i think it's worth you know even keeping in mind like trying to understand the level of uncertainty there can be very helpful just because look if i'm going to if i'm going to break down the formation higher up now I've got a flow and losses I've got to treat. And even if I dealing with one at a time is usually better than trying to handle both, especially when you're trying to clean the hole and and drill, not just shut down while you're trying to fix these issues. Of course. And of course, you don't know how much you're flowing, if you're losing some, you don't know how much is actually making it to surface. It can just create a little bit of uninvited chaos yeah. in an already troubling situation. So Trying to not go on losses is worthwhile, but sometimes we find, you know, you're shut in pressures. You you calculate your hydrostatic, and you say, "Look, I only need like three tenths of a pound, yeah, and I can shut this sucker off. Like, do it, right? You know. And if you want to, you know, depending on the operator and sort of the
1: way they look at, at the economics of the well, oftentimes if you know you have to wait up and you're kind of concerned about possibility of losses, well, maybe pre-treat. You know, again, it yeah. depends on the cost benefit there, but. The option, you know, aside from cost being, you know, talked about, but you you could always pre-treat with some LCM that way, if you know, you're going to wait up or if you, okay, let's, you know, wait up a couple of times. Well, then maybe you pre-treat it with certain concentration LCM to give you hopefully a little bit more frac gradient. And, you know, there's a slew of products for that, but, you know, without getting into details on that, like, those are some options. If you know, you're going to wait up, you can do some things to help mitigate the chances of losses. So, and then, you know, moving on to, okay, you're, maybe you are taking a flow, Your water ratio starts dropping, chloride start dropping, whatever the case is, you've identified the flow. You know, the obvious question is, okay, do we treat it? Do we spend a bunch of money trying to treat it and keep that mud? Or if it's bad, do we just start dumping? I mean, these questions have to be answered somewhat on the fly.
0: Yeah. I mean, and to some degree, I think this is almost like your LCM decision tree. Right. It can be fairly helpful to at least run the numbers. I mean, keep in mind that there's going to be a cost difference between different weights of mud and all the, you know, factors there, but it's like, okay, if the mud flips or it's, it's on the cusp, you know, it may be cheaper to just displace it than to try and, to try and treat it. Yeah. Especially if you think you can get the thing under control and really you can cut your losses and, and get back to drilling. But, you know, sometimes we've had folks who've said, oh, can we get it back? You know, oil-based mud's expensive. And it's like, you're going to spend a lot more in chemical trying to re- reclaim this than you ever will and just moving on. And so kind of understanding that inflection point, can I bring it back? But you know, we've drilled with you know 50/50 oil water ratio muds that were fine. I mean, they're they're not pretty to look at, but we're past you know through some critical areas. Maybe we don't need as tight a properties just to finish up the well. Right. We've gotten by when we haven't had the choice. It's not our first option, but when do we make those decisions of how hard to fight and how much money to spend fighting it? Right. And that's going to be, like you said, it's it's on the fly because how close are we to TD? Like how much work do I want to put into this Right. relative to how far I have to go? And it's not just one factor that's going to help you make that decision. Right. And that's the one thing too, is, is
1: while you're in the planning stages of, of a well like this, understanding, okay, you know, if, if we do take flow and it's uncontrollable and we do have to swap to water-based mud what type of water based mud i mean mm-hmm. you know do you are you going to have a system on standby to where you could just displace on the fly if all of a sudden you need to or you know like what are your options maybe the warehouse is 20 minutes away and you've got a system built on in in storage maybe you're all you need is a 10 pound brine. And the operator's like, no, we can get 2000 barrels of brine within a couple hours because of X, Y, Z. Okay. Well then, you know, so depending on the situation, understanding, okay, don't just, Oh, we're, we're going to displace now. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, let's plan for the displacement like have that already lined out. And you don't maybe necessarily need to have 2000 barrels of water-based mud sitting on location, but, but have a plan in place to where if you start taking it, cause you're only going to have a few hours probably if, if all of a sudden it comes at you hard to where you're going to need to start planning and getting trucks lined up and, You know, pumps and hoses and tanks and... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, get
0: people thinking, right? Yeah, Um, exactly. They're good questions in the planning phase, even if it's like, I'm not asking for an answer right now, but what are some things we would consider? Yeah, at least you may still have to do the economics on the fly based upon the combination of events that put you in that situation. But at the very least, you could say, now that I know that here are my three options... And here's about how much I think they're going to cost based upon what we're looking at. Yeah. But anything that can sort of get everybody to kick it around before you're in the middle of, you know, in the middle of it where it's like, wait, can I sleep on it? No, 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 no. We got to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, could make a, a pretty big difference.
1: Exactly. And so, man, I'm, I'm curious more from like a theoretical standpoint at what point, and again, like, you know, this is, discuss with you know management and everything else, but in theory, how far could you go taking a flow? Like what, what's the old water ratio that let's just say in a lab that things just completely fall apart? I mean, is there any guidance on that without like writing it in stone
0: or depends on the emulsifier. I mean I've I've actually intentionally drilled with forty sixty. I mean not with these emulsifier packages necessarily, but I mean NR Reach could we've done NR Reach at fifty fifty in the field. And I think with a little bit of tweaking I do less than that. But There's a cost to that too, right? Sure, of Um, course, right. I know very, very expensive chemistry where you could probably go even even lower than that. And then it just becomes, these droplets all want to stick together and agglomerate. And so you kind of just try and keep them broken up and distributed. And you can go lower than you'd think. The interesting thing is the lower you go, the point, you know, where mud just starts to get thick and you say like, I can't handle these properties. Like that's a slow burn from like, 70 30 down to 50 50 once you get below like 40 60 with some of those emulsifier packages like in the lab at least on a mixer it'll just boom and lock up Mm. like it happens so suddenly that pretty much in the drilling environment on a rig i think it would happen so quickly that it would just be you'd have almost no way to recover So I like to leave myself a little bit of buffer. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, Case in point. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, it it has to do with these emulsifiers because they're trying to grab that water and put it in the internal phase. Mm -hmm. And eventually they get so much water and they're trying to align themselves in this oil and there's not enough oil and there's so much water that instead of bringing the oil into the or or the water into the internal phase, they just stick to each other. Right. Um, And that's when you get that sort of like peanut butter junk.
1: Hmm. Nobody wants that. No. Cool. Well, I think, you know, for the most part, Matt, I think we've covered most of, of sort of the planning and considerations. And again, operationally, I mean, there's so many different scenarios where this can occur, but hopefully we've covered enough. And, and th- these are the exact conversations we had this morning with with the customer. But at the end of the day, there are things that you can do to help mitigate the effects of taking water and obviously some options as you, as you move forward. Matt, is there anything else that really should be, you know, discuss or anything beyond what we've talked about today that uh, would be good for the listeners to take away from.
0: I mean, I think the main thing is you can have all this stuff together, but you need a really good mud engineer near the pits, yeah, to see this stuff and react quickly. Don't let it get out of hand. And you know, that's one of the things we know. Even even some of our great products like Flowmol, they look way better. With a good hand, Mm -hmm. turning the spigot and letting him run. Yeah.
1: Well, I guess, Matt, one thing that kind of just came to mind, we touched on it a couple of times, but not really specifically, is what are the telltale signs of taking a water flow? Are there any early indications that someone can look out for aside from the obvious?
0: I mean, sometimes it is. You just start to see that move on your retort, right? It could be subtle there, but the fluid will start to get a little thicker. Um, It starts to lose that shine but a lot of times that happens when the emulsion's already stressed. Mm-hmm. So the more subtle thing is, you know, you'll see a slight increase in rheology, you'll see a slight increase in your water, your chlorides will go down if it's since oil-based mud, they're likely to go down depending on your water phase salinity, but it's likely that you'll you'll pick up you're taking a lot of sodium chloride. But those things will start most of my experience what'll happen is you'll sort of scratch your head and be like, "Oh, you know, we're we gained a percentage on the water. I wonder what that is. And then the ne- you know, a few hours later, that next day, or whatever, you're like, well, now it's three percent. Yeah, you know, like like you're like, oh, we're taking water. Mm-hmm. So some of them can be this sort of, you know, those subtle ones tend to be that way, where it's like one percent on a retort is almost nothing. But trust your gut. Right. Like start keeping an eye on things. Yep. The other ones you'll know right away. exactly you don't get a lot of time and and it's seeing you don't need to ring the fire bell if if
1: you do start but just bring it up on location say hey here's what i've noticed again not trying to raise the alarm here but you know maybe if we whether it's if we shut this in or on connections let's be just really look at and see if we're taking any bit of flow because sometimes it's just a little bit right but you notice it in your retort you may not notice it on connections and into your you're checking your mud and your or your weight and your vis every 15 minutes if the vis goes from, just call it 55, all of a sudden it goes to 57, maybe it goes to 58, now it's touching 60, but nothing else has really changed, you know, that's something to, well, maybe I need to take a mud check and see what's like, why is the vis, again, I don't like to use viscosity as anything, like, viscosity is kind of funny, right? Because we've talked about why or why not, it's something important, but it's something that can lead you to ask more questions.
0: Exactly. It's a signal to go to a mud check. That's Correct. That's it's way easier than a mud check to tell you you need to do a mud check. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: And same thing with weight, obviously, but yeah. sometimes yeah, cuz water will naturally like Matt said, the rheology start to go wonky, but you might first notice it on the funnel vis if let's just say you took a mud check and then an hour later you start taking flow, but you know, according to your daily plan you may not have been planning for a mud check for another few hours. Well, hey, maybe I need to do another one here, spot check this cuz all of a sudden my vis jumped. Like, why is that? And so some things that, uh, you know, if because at the end of the day, the earlier you can catch it, the better, absolutely. So that's all I got, Matt. Uh, anything else? No, that's it for me. Sweet. Well, for the listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you could share this episode, you know, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to, hit us up on LinkedIn, Matt and I are on there quite actively, and follow AES Drilling Fluids. You know, our marketing department continues to pump out content on a regular basis that's really valuable. and. Just a lot of the events and technical information that we're sharing. It's great to keep up with and certainly appreciate everyone for listening. If you have any questions, you can also email us at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Thanks again, everyone. Be safe out there. Until next time.
0: Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.